0: are listening to the Addiction Files where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to the Addiction Files. Tonight we are doing the top 5 takeaways for 2023 in addiction medicine and We're going to start out talking about the 2022 NASDA data overview, and then we're going to go into discussing the increase in post-pandemic drinking and how just the general isolation and loneliness plays into drinking, and then the public health warning and xylazine and fentanyl. So how, well, how is that playing a part in overdose deaths? And then just brand new released the ASAM Clinical Treatment Guidelines for Stimulant Use Disorders. So we're just going to introduce this. We will do a whole podcast on this coming up. And then so the MATE legislation, what does that mean? Who does it affect? Who's exempt from it? And so let's start out. The 2022 NASDA data was just released just in November, and actually the monitoring the future data is coming out. We're recording this early in December, and that comes out typically mid-December. So watch for that. What does this tell us? Where is substance use disorder? So just as a broad overview, in 2022, we saw still substance use. Some things remain the same. But most things we saw a slight uptick and we saw 48.7 million people aged 12 and older. And that is approximately 17.3% had a substance use disorder in the past year. 29.5 million who had an alcohol use disorder and 27.2 million had a drug use disorder in the past year. And if you combine both alcohol use and substance use disorder, it's equated to approximately 8 million people per year. So our numbers are still staggeringly high. The most used substance among, among Americans, so people age 12 and older, is still cannabis, was the most. Used illicit substance with 22% of people ages 12 and older. And that is approximately 61.9 million people use, and that's past year use. And 72.3 million people 12 and older used an illicit substance. So that's approximately 25% in the past year. So those numbers tend to be pretty steady, but they're not. It's not really decreasing, which is a little bit discouraging. Increased, so increased drinking in the post-pandemic period. This was a really interesting area because we have been, we have done several episodes on this, but we saw the COVID-19 pandemic was, we saw widespread like changes in just human behavior in general. And from the National Institute of Health, we saw that during the first year of the pandemic, alcohol sales jumped by nearly 3%. And this was noted to be the largest increase in more than 50 years. And then multiple small studies also showed that 25% of people reported drinking more than usual. And we certainly would agree with that. That's what we've seen and have continued to see in the three years post-pandemic. The biggest thing that we're now asking since is so we've continued to see these spikes and since this, so usually they've noted that with any kind of major disasters illnesses, outbreaks of wars, you will see these spikes. And then these drinking levels like after five to six years, you slowly returning to those usual levels. And this came out in May of this year, May of 2023. There was a sur- actually a Surgeon General Advisory talking about this devastating impact of loneliness and isolation. And some of this is being attributed to this increase in alcohol use. So, tell us a little bit about that. Um, okay,
1: so the so doctors, um, the Surgeon General, Doctor Vivek Murthy, in May of 2023, he released a Surgeon General advisory calling attention to the public health crisis, which he noted um, being loneliness, isolation, and lack of connection. And he said even before the onset of the pandemic, half of the U.S. adults reported experiencing measurable levels of loneliness, which is really interesting because I don't think we've really talked about that a lot, like as a nation. Um, And he talks about the connection.
0: Or as a health crisis, like as a health problem, which I think was what was really, really interesting. He
1: talks about um, the connection of loneliness linking to certain health conditions including increased risk for heart disease stroke dementia and also premature death in general and so as a response he lays out a framework for a national strategy to address loneliness by advancing social connections so this is a framework that the government's trying to work on and it is comprised of five different points and you can look them up and read them online from the department sorry not five six the department of health and human services and actually re- read his advisories, and see what the goals are, but in brief, he calls to strengthen social infrastructure, so the physical elements of communities need to be fortified, that's like building parks, building places where people can gather, enacting pro-connection public policies, so actually changing that on a policy level all the way from tribal and local governments up to national and state. That would include things like um, increasing accessible public transport, increasing paid family leave, et cetera, which I think would be a great um, direction for our country since we lack we we lag behind other, like especially Scandinavian countries who are very progressive in terms of family leave. Um, number three is mobilizing the health sector. So we need to realize as a health community, like you were just saying, Darlene, that we're not recognizing this as a major risk factor, although Those of us in clinical medicine, of course, are seeing it like where we see it all the time and we recognize that lonely people are much more at risk. He's calling for a reformation of digital environments and asking that we critically Mm -hmm. evaluate the relationship that we have with technology. And all of us know that the phone, the phone has like completely disrupted relationships as we know them and social interactions. Like we just need to go to into any restaurant or go into any public place and just watch everyone on their phone to realize that we've had a breakdown of communication and connection. And then he asks for a deepening of knowledge um, around this and then also cultivating a culture of connection. So this is kind of a little bit removed from what you're talking about with alcohol and the pandemic, but it does really connect because a lot of people are saying that they've been drinking more in the setting of loneliness that was just started pre-pandemic and then much Um, exacerbated by the pandemic.
0: The ASAM Stimulant Use Disorder Guidelines was just released November 7th of 2023. And this is something that is widely prevalent stimulant use disorders. And so having this guideline is to provide evidence-based strategies, clinical informed standards of care. And this is for prevention and treatment of substance use disorders. And this also includes information on stimulant intoxication and stimulant withdrawal. So quite comprehensive. And if you have not heard about it, I encourage you to look that up and review that. And we will also do a more in-depth review coming up. And then moving forward. So xylazine. this is just released was a public warning on the widespread threat of fentanyl mixed with xylazine. We did a full episode on xylazine and the ins and outs with that. The challenge that we have, and I'm just going to start with this, and then Paula, I'm going to have you uh, talk more about this, but what is most of us in our offices and our point of care testing we have two substances that most people really can't test for in our point of care testing. And that's one big challenge that we have. And then we have something as a very powerful sedative that's being mixed with an incredibly powerful opiate. And this is, this is very risky and, as far as overdose deaths. So give us some more information. What are we looking at? What is the statistics like? How often are they seeing this? And this is information that's coming from the DEA. So this is where they are seizing this and finding this in substances.
1: Well, According to the CDC and their release in June of 2023 in their morbidity and mortality weekly report, they report on January 2019 to June 2022 data they looked at 21 jurisdictions and they note that xylazine was detected in um overdose deaths and it increased from two excuse me increased 276% from January of 2019 to June of 2022 so that's a huge increase so back yeah. in January of 2019 it was about 2.9% involved in um deaths and then by June 2022, involved in 10.9%. So a it was detected, Yeah, much bigger jump. This was mostly jurisdictions in the northeast part of the country. And of course, we know now that xylazine is being detected all over the country. So this led to a um, release by the DEA. They put out a, um, a public health alert saying that xylazine is making it the deadliest drug threat our country has ever faced, which is quite a statement really. They're saying that the DEA is seizing xylosine and fentanyl mixtures in 48 of 50 states at this point and that 23% of fentanyl powder and 7% of fentanyl pills seized by the DEA in 2022 contain xylosine. So this just adds to the risk like Darlene said of um, higher risk of fatal drug poisoning because of the tranquilizing effects of xylosine Being that it's not an opioid, naloxone, which we use to reverse opioids, is not effective against it. Right. And then it also has this horrible effect um, of wounds. So people who do inject xylazine are much more susceptible to develop um, severe wounds that are often necrotizing, not healing, and can cause some significant downstream effects. So. They're recommending that we all educate ourselves as healthcare workers about the risks to patients exposed to xylosine and illicit drugs, and that we provide xylosine test strips to those of our patients who do inject drugs so that they actually are informed about their drug supply.
0: Last is the MATE Act and training requirement and resources. So what what is that all of us we talked extensively about this last year, the removal of the DEA waiver, and then the requirement that came out that now all providers, so anyone who has a DEA registration to prescribe Schedule 2 through 5 medications, now is required to complete training on addiction, and what the May Act essentially comes down to. What is the nuts and bolts of this? So when did this come into effect? So it it was signed into effect as part as the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. And that came into effect on December 29th, 2022. And what does that mean, though? So as passage of this, this means you have to complete at least eight hours of training This can be cumulative, it does not have to be in one single session, so this can be over several different courses on either opiate or other substance use disorders that has been approved by certain specified organizations. And that has to be very clear, there are only certain ones that will qualify for that eight hours of training. This is a key for most, for many people that are listening to this. If you hold a current board certification in addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry from one of the American Board Specialties or the American Board of Addiction Medicine, then you are exempt from this training requirement. And then the third exemption is if you've graduated within five years in good standing from a medical or advanced practice nursing or physician assistant school within the United States that included successful completion of an opiate or other substance use disorder curriculum. So your school has to have submitted that they have provided addiction treatment as part of your curriculum. Training must include the treatment and management of patients with opiate and other substance use disorders and appropriate clinical use of all drugs approved by the FDA for the treatment use disorder. I really like that, that that's actually specified. And this all comes directly from SAMHSA's website. So you can go directly to there if you have additional questions. There's a couple of other things that are a little more into the details. If you held previously a waiver and have met the training requirements to prescribe buprenorphine, then you can attest that you've already met the training requirements. There is one exception to that. If you're a practitioner that received the 30E waiver, what that means is you applied for the up to 30 waiver with the exemption, meaning you didn't do the training, then you have to go through and do the regular eight hour training, meaning so you did not do the training at that time. We'll put this link in our show notes for anyone who has additional questions, but I think that's helpful and clears that up. But this is one thing where I think this is a major help for those of you that did that extra work and one. Have your board certification in addiction medicine. And so you don't have to do additional training. You can be the ones to train the rest. So thank you and continue doing the work. And I appreciate that they are encouraging this to be added to the curriculum. And they're also focusing on evidence-based treatment and strategies because that's always our goal. So I think that's great. So that is our wrap and our highlights for the year. So, thank you everyone and have a good night until next time hey check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles@gmail.com. at gmail.com thank you so much to ricky valides for use of his song awake check him out at rickyvalides.com And education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.